Welcome Sac State students to a new podcast series or a semi-adult survival guide exploring the sometimes confusing topics we face as we enter college. I'm your host Rose Vega and today we're talking about birth control and sex education. I spoke with Sac State interior architecture major Safa Salah on her experience. Yeah, no, they didn't teach us anything. <laughs> Sadly, the internet was my education. <laughs> Did you start birth control or like how did that process go or how did you first learn about even about birth control? Planned Parenthood, big thing. I actually didn't start being active until I was probably 20, just out of choice. I was using condoms first, but then I started getting scared before I got my period because I, you know, you never know if it breaks or if it doesn't. And so I wanted to look into birth control and then I just typed in where can I buy birth control online? And that's how Plant Parenthood popped up. And it's just, it's so amazing over there. You just get everything for free. They teach you about all the side effects, all the good things, all the bad things that you do and stuff like that. So they primarily taught me everything I needed to know. Do they do implants at Planned Parenthood? I know there's like different options, but, or. They do implants. Uh, they told me my choices, you know, like uh, what I remember is the most popular one is the IUD. And um like the pill, the implants, condoms, contraceptives, yeah. But um, yeah, they told me everything and I just wanted something a little less permanent. <laughs> I don't know. They also told me, you know, there's a chance that you'd stop getting your period if you got an implant. Um, and also I didn't want anything surgical. So the easiest option was to go out by the pill. She did tell me a lot of side effects, which I was scared of. Uh, honestly, I just like my friend just started taking birth control too. And I told her to uh, try to calm herself for the first six months that she takes it because uh, it takes a toll on our emotions. And uh, I just told her to watch out for that. <laughs> and then prior to that, you said you didn't know much. So like after that, did you feel like, wow, I didn't, I didn't realize that when all this stuff went into birth control. Like I remember when I first started, I was like, wait, what are the side effects? I know. I was honestly just, I was more scared of like how, or I was more curious just how, cause you know, like with every medication, there's like, they always tell you that there's this side effect and that side. But I thought it wouldn't be as quick or just as real, I guess, you know, cause they say if you take like Advil, like there's side effects to even getting like a worse headache or something like that. But I thought it was the same thing with birth control. So I was like, oh, like, yeah, I mean, you know, it's just like any medication, like you're, gonna have some side effects but then after being a month on it I just realized just how badly the side effects were and how true they were but also they affect like every person so differently for me it made me really irritable and have like the worst temper (laughs) and my poor partner is like had to deal with me like that but that was majorly like even I after I would I would like get irritable I would be like, why is this annoying me so much? Like, I don't understand. You know, like depression is a huge part of, a huge side effect of birth control. And I did, I, I would have like the winter blues sometimes. So I kind of knew what that felt like. And that was the most scary part for me. That's why I held off on going on birth control for so long. Because it's one of the side effects is uh, weight gain and depression, which I already had a problem with on my own. <laughs> So I was like very hesitant at first, but then I was like, you know, it's better than getting knocked out by accident. (laughs) So I kind of just took my chances, but I've been on it for like three years now and it's finally kind of getting the normal, but you know, when you don't know if it's normal or if you just got used to it. 
So I always think about like, what would I feel like if I got off of birth control kind of thing. Do you think there's like a lot of pressure for females compared to males to like be in control of birth control? Yes, yes, 100% yes. Because on one hand, I say it's very sexist. Why does a woman have to take birth control? Why doesn't the man have to do anything about it? But on the other hand, it's like, would I really trust a man to not get me pregnant kind of thing? Because they could easily forget, you know? Because at the end of the day, it's my body and I'm the one who's going to get pregnant, not them. So they probably wouldn't care as much as me taking it kind of thing, you know? But yeah, I heard they were doing uh, male birth control, I guess. But I don't know how that will, that's going to work out. And then did you find it overall easy? You said like you just looked it up online. Do you think it was pretty easy to make appointment and get access and be able to learn about birth control? Definitely. Honestly, like 100%, you have the internet and just looking up, the first thing that pops up is Planned Parenthood. The fact that it's so easy to get an appointment, it's discreet. They give you your own insurance for free if you don't have your own or if you don't want to, like if you live with your parents and you don't want them to find out, everything's free. Like I have never actually paid for birth control, but I, I have donated to Planned Parenthood just because I know they do so much for people who can't afford it. But yeah, it is honestly super simple. It's it's an amazing organization and um, taught me everything I know. Is there anything you'd say to young girls who are like maybe nervous about like, trying to figure out about birth control or like nervous to talk to somebody else? I would say um, don't be in a rush because it's a lot of hormones that you don't want to inject into your body too soon. Uh, but it's definitely a way that you can be safe. I would just talk to someone you trust. I didn't really have that. I could trust the people at Parent Parenthood because they never force you to do anything. They kind of just let you know everything, all your options and all the stuff you need. They're straightforward with you about the side effects and all the things that could go wrong and all the things that could go right, you know. But if you're in a position where you are um, with a partner for a long time and you've or even not if you're just sexually active and you don't want to get pregnant, then that's definitely an option. Just be aware of all the stuff that comes with it for sure. My last question for Safa was to come up with a question of her own to ask an expert. But one question I would ask, um, is it painful, the IUD, is it painful (laughs) to be surgically implanted? So I am Dr. Elizabeth Gordon. I am an integrative sexual health psychiatrist and a sex therapist, and I am also an author and educator uh, focusing on sexual health and sexual health education, both for the public and within the health field, particularly medical health, but all health fields. Longest term option is an IUD. That stands for intrauterine device. IUDs come in a couple of flavors. They basically are in the copper IUD, which is the IUD itself. They're the same kind of basic device wrapped in a little bit of copper or a hormonal IUD. And that is not wrapped in copper, but has embedded in it a bit of hormone that can come out slowly that works very predominantly in a localized fashion within the uterus, but does still circulate a bit throughout the body to uh, affect the hormone balance. So the IUD is a little T-shaped device. It kind of has one long base and then a crossbar, roughly, and it has a string attached to the bottom of the T. You fold the top two pieces and you insert it through the cervix and it kind of 
rests up and wedges in the uterus and the string hangs down from the cervix for removal at a later date. It's not string as in a, a cotton string sitting there, but it's essentially what it is. And these work depending on the kind that you have. They work for quite a while. Again, this does require that you have a prescription, essentially. I mean, it needs to be placed by a healthcare practitioner and it needs to be done within an office. The placement of it is not so comfortable, but it doesn't require as much of a procedure. There is, it is relatively non-invasive. And by that, I mean that you're not cutting through skin. You don't have to um, go in and actually cut tissue, but you do have to go in through the vagina up and then through the cervix, which is an uncomfortable procedure. If anybody has experienced a pap smear where you are touching the cervix um, or bumped that in the process of intercourse, you know that that can be quite uncomfortable, if not downright painful, and here you are going through the cervix. On the other hand, it's momentary. There are very few people who haven't been able to tolerate, not nobody, but very few who haven't been able to tolerate the placement of the IUD, and then it's over. Most people tolerate having the IUD extremely well. The two forms work slightly differently. Uh, the copper one is there because it kind of chases the sperm away. Sperm don't like copper. There might be some gentle irritation to the lining that also prevents the implantation of a fertilized egg. And the hormonal one works, works really in two ways. The hormonal ones contain the hormone progestin, and that is a synthetic version of progesterone that the body produces naturally. And with progestin, you have increased thickening of the mucus at the cervix. This is natural state. People in a natural healthy state have mucus at the cervix. You want mucus at the cervix, but this makes it a little bit thicker, which happens normally in a cycle anyway, and happens again in pregnancy. That increased thickness prevents the sperm from getting through. And it also works potentially to stop ovulation from happening to begin with. So either the sperm's not getting through to fertilize the egg before the egg can get through the cervix, so you can't have implantation, and or you don't have an egg to begin with so that you can't get pregnant. They both work very well. The copper one, you can use up to 12 years before it has to be replaced. The different forms of hormonal ones last between three and 10 years depends on which kind you get. So you only have to go back into the office every three to 10 years. These again are on a cost consideration, uh, a little bit more on the expensive side, depends again on your insurance, where you go, what happens, but it can, I think, be up to about 1500. You'd have to double check me on that. So again, you know, if you don't, if you have good insurance coverage, doesn't cost you out of pocket anything, at that time, but up to about $1,500. Other forms of hormonal birth control. And these include the implant, and they also include a shot, um, a vaginal ring, and an oral contraceptive, a pill that you take, and a patch that you can put on the body. But what I would add is all of these forms of hormonal birth control, those are all things that women take. These are all hormonal birth control for women to regulate the either the production of the egg, which is called ovulation, and or the hospitability of the uterus and changing it so that it makes it less likely that if there is a fertilized egg, it will implant and or making it harder for the sperm to get to the egg. There are no hormonal options 
yet for men. That is definitely something that the sexual health field, uh, medicine in general, is behind on. All of these, the permanent birth control and these hormonal methods, one, very importantly, don't actually protect against anything but pregnancy. They don't protect against sexually transmitted infections. So that is something to be extremely cognizant of because pregnancy is not the only thing to consider. You want to keep yourself and your partner safe and sexually transmitted infections are on the rise. And I don't say this in any shaming manner, but as a knowledge awareness and all sexually transmitted infections are currently on the rise in the U.S. Some of them are almost epidemic, if not pandemic, throughout the U.S. Condoms are a barrier method. There's a male condom and a female condom. These are in and of themselves extremely effective, higher 90s, but they also protect against STIs. So unless you know your partner and you've agreed to be exclusive or partners and have agreed to be exclusive, and unless you've all been tested, so it's these double steps, really using these barrier methods is extremely, extremely important. I feel like a lot of at least youth, they think that like you can get pregnant at like literally any time, but there is, is there usually a certain window of time that's like best normally if you're trying to conceive, obviously, if you're not trying to conceive? Yes. There are times at which you are more likely to get pregnant as a woman. There is a cycle that happens. It is quoted as 28 days. On average, it is 28 days. That starts from the first day of your period. That 28 days starts from the first day of your period. And ostensibly, ovulation would be at day 14. But this is a textbook, right? <laughs> this is the average of all the women. So even your average woman who is usually like clockwork can be off sometimes because of stress or lack of sleep or, you know, little things like worldwide pandemics affecting your daily routine. So this can be varied. And the reality is that you can get pregnant around that time. It's not just if you have sex on day 14 and sperm can last in the vaginal tract for days. So officially it's two to three days, but there are plenty of reports of sperm lasting up to five days in the vaginal tract. So that takes out a large chunk of time that you need to really not be having any intercourse, not having sperm anywhere near the vulva or the vagina to ensure that you don't get pregnant or you have some possibility of getting pregnant. So this um, rhythm is the idea that you would not have sex around that time. But that would mean really to absolutely ensure that you're not pregnant five days before and five days after. So 10 days out of that 28-day cycle. Um, I also wanted to talk a little bit about the stigma or I guess like taboo around, I guess, sex education and birth control, especially with uh, females. I feel like sometimes when you're younger, it's one of those things that like, oh, we don't really talk about or there's just a lack of sex education in general to address? Like, why do you think there's such a taboo and like, how do you think we can stop that? So this is a, a huge problem in the United States and there is extremely little sex education. When I last did my research, which was already six, nine months ago, so I have to say that, you know, these things do change bit by bit, but it was something like only 26 states required any form of sexual or health education, and only 17 or 18 of those require that it be medically accurate. So that's less than half of the states that require medically accurate information. Even when they do, 
what is being taught when is still very fluid. Why is this? There's a lot of thought that goes into that, ranging from our very puritanic origins to uh, the mores of the Victorian era and the idea that really conflated sexuality with immorality, which may have been separate from the puritanical origins. But sexuality has really become something that is deeply stigmatized and marginalized. And it is really sad because we now have had a resurgence. We actually were going in a good direction through the 70s and 80s, but have had a resurgence in stigmatizing sexuality more recently that seems to coincide with the rise of more fundamentalist, both political and religious groups. But why that is so sad is because the research proves again and again and again that the earlier you start and the more information you provide, actually the less sex people are having and the longer they are waiting to have it. And I don't mean less sex overall for the rest of their life, but I mean less as early young engagers in sex. So that you have a delayed onset of sexual engagement and when people do engage, which delayed onset then correlates with less early problems, but when people do engage, they're engaging more safely and with more consent and understanding so that you have both later first engagement and you have less sexually transmitted infections, less teenage pregnancy, and higher rates of satisfaction with the engagement and the sex that they're having. So these are all good things to my mind. And it's proven again and again that abstinence-only education doesn't accomplish that. In fact, it might accomplish the opposite. So there are a lot of groups that are working to change that. But as you may have been aware, there are a lot of groups that push back against it. Somehow become a political issue, even though uh, it's, you know, to scientists' mind, pure science. But as we've seen lately, so many things have become political issues. So it's, uh, it's been difficult, but the urge should be, or the, the push should be towards more sexual health education earlier. And when it's not being provided in schools, it does fall on parents, but parents may feel awkward. And we see in places like Scandinavia, where they start really early, that they have great outcomes. And what is not completely understood, I think, by the American public is that it doesn't have to, sex is not just intercourse. Sexual health is about everything that goes into it, from what your identity is, what your genetics are, how you conceptualize your gender, to how you interact with others in a way that would provide erotic pleasure for yourself and guarantee your safety while hopefully providing pleasure and guaranteeing safety for other people. And that may mean that it may be something that other people don't like or could be painful to other people, but as long as it's consensual and agreed upon, that's fine too. So it is all of these issues. And in the places where they start this education early, they do it in an extremely developmentally appropriate, age-appropriate fashion, where they're not talking to kindergartners about intercourse or oral sex. They're talking to kindergartners about this is your body, these are the parts that you have, these are the names that you have, this is how you respect your body, this is how you respect the body of your friends. For instance, you, if you want a hug, you would ask for it. If you want to give your friend a hug, you ask for it first and see how they feel about that, which is really fundamentally giving them self-agency, names for their body parts, awareness, comfort, and 
beginning the foundations of consent, and then you build from there. But hitting the ideas of actual sexual engagement early on before people hit sexual activity provides them with the information that they need to be able to engage safely and to in a way that's satisfying. I think you've brought up a great point is that I think a lot of people just assume that sex education is the, the like scientific this is that and the STDs and but really if you have good sex education and you know what you're talking about a, like you said, you're, you're bringing a base of consent and also in the end, you're getting more satisfaction because you're able to know what's going on, explain, okay, I don't like this or you're more comfortable with it. And I think that's probably the, the problem is people don't always feel, feel comfortable because they haven't been taught it. And you bring up the extra good point too, which is that you mentioned the stigma and perhaps especially for women with birth control, our current sex education is set up to be about the negatives don't get pregnant, don't get an infection, but nowhere do people model or talk about, and by model, I don't mean in person, but provide some form of model of what a satisfying, pleasurable interaction looks like. So people are left to perhaps seek their information off of porn. But that's kind of like in my mind saying, okay, we are not gonna allow you to walk on the streets to see a car. We're never gonna get you in a car. You don't even know what cars are like, but now that you're 13 here, sit down, play Grand Theft Auto. Okay, now that you're 16, we're gonna toss you the keys and you're ready to go. It's a stylized version, not the real thing, or as another friend of mine put it, a little bit like watching some action movie, um, superhero movie, and then expecting you to be able to go out and save the day, because when you jump off a building, you're gonna fly too. <laughs> So you, there is something to modeling what happens in real life and what pleasure looks like in order to help have successful pleasure rather than just stigmatizing. And you're right, it does get stigmatized even more for women in our culture. There is a bit of, ah, boys will be boys, boys should be sexual, which in and of itself can be very damaging too, because the pressure to then perform sexually without knowing what that looks like and what it means to you has its own problems. But for women, it's don't, 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 don't. Okay, now you should know what to do. Anything else you wanted to add or wanted to emphasize? There are sources. There are sources to learn these things. There are sources both to learn the basics. Planned Parenthood has great basics, but there are other sources to learn more about the pleasure and the other aspects of engaging in sexuality. There are websites, there are apps that you can interact with. There are, and I'm sure this sounds old fashioned, but great, great books out there, which are handy if you want to order them privately through whatever website and then have them at home and reference them. And do not assume that your friends know anymore. Please get together, talk about it, look around, ask about it. Seek out people, seek out websites, and feel free to ask questions. Even if people start to squirm or you feel a little squirmy about it, the more we talk about it, the more we normalize it, the healthier and happier we're all going to be. Thanks for listening. This has been Real Talk with Rose with your host, Rose Vega. Tune in next time for more.